you would turn your Bible to 2 Samuel 21, just a brief announcement. Those, many of you know that we have a prayer group on Mondays at 3.30. Everyone is invited to that. We meet in the older building over there, 3.30. We're done by 4.30. And you're always invited. We pray through Scripture. We pray for kingdom issues. We're going to spend a little more time tomorrow than normal to pray for our city. And, and maybe you've heard that there's some groups coming in, evidently, that are going to be protesting the Breonna Taylor situation. Um, evidently, our policemen have been presumed guilty without a trial. And that's not constitutional it's not what we're about but we are obviously in need of prayer in our city and so we need to pray for the leadership of this city we need to pray for our policemen we need to pray that the Lord would comfort Brianna Taylor's loved ones by his gospel we need to pray for our churches in this city so I invite you to come out tomorrow we'll be done by 4 30 we're not panicking. We, we already know who sits enthroned, and yet there are special times when God's people need to pray. And I realize many of you can't be here. I mean, you have jobs and other responsibilities. Don't feel the guilt of that. But if you can be here, we would encourage you to be here tomorrow, 3.30 in the other building. Let's pray. Father, as the song has reminded us once again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy is the Father, holy is the Son, holy is the Spirit, three in one. And Father, we come to a very difficult text today. One more difficult text perhaps in the Old Testament, the Bible for that matter. In many ways, it's a dark text. And yet... We pray that even in the midst of this dark text, your spirit would give us eyes to behold your holiness and to behold your glory that we know supremely in the face of your son. In whose name we pray, amen. 81 years ago this very week, Adolf Hitler began implementing his plan to invade Poland and in so doing start a war but he knew that he couldn't just simply attack he had to make it look like self-defense and so on August the 22nd 1939 81 years ago yesterday he told his generals I shall give a propagandist reason for starting the war. Can propaganda start a war? Yes. The plan was for the SS, his military, to disguise themselves in Polish military uniforms and attack a German radio station situated on the border of Poland and Germany. Now, to make it look authentic, they would need 
German bodies. They wouldn't make, need to make it look like there were actual casualties. And so he, he took bodies from POWs, real life humans that they killed for this, all right? They took these humans that they murdered and they dressed them as German soldiers so as to make it look like the Polish military had actually killed some Germans. Now, to murder men in order to deceive the world was the opening act for an invasion of Poland, which would come on September the 1st, 39. Of course, Poland was just one example of Hitler's varied campaign to take control of Europe. From 39 to 41, he would actually invade nine countries, culminating with Greece in 1941. And with each invasion in these various European countries, the aggressor was always Germany, Adolf Hitler. But the place, the strategy of attack differed. And that's the way Satan battles us. He's always ultimately the enemy. These groups coming in this week, they're not the enemy. There's an enemy behind any kind of public sin or private sin for, for that matter. He's always the enemy, but he attacks on several different fronts with various strategies. That's why Paul describes his ways as methodias. Schemes, multiple schemes of the devil. Well, David was no stranger to warfare, which in the New Test or Old Testament rather serves as a, a physical picture of the kind of spiritual warfare that we as believers experience every day in the New Covenant. And as we've seen throughout Samuel, besides the external battles which was largely with the Philistines, which we're going to see today again, we also have seen that he was tormented time and time again within the covenant community by Saul and his household. In fact, he seems, the text seems to have Saul and his household and the, and the Philistines kind of in his sights as you begin chapter 22, notice real quickly over in chapter 22, verse 1, David spoke to the Lord the words of this song. is a song of deliverance when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And so that appears to be the two big culprits in David's life throughout. You have the external enemies, primarily the Philistines, and from within the camp, Saul and his household. Indeed, David, for a decade, was on the run from Saul. His life was on the line daily for a decade, hiding out in caves. None of us have ever experienced what David experienced in that decade. And then when he did become king, there was Abner, Saul's first cousin, who kind of engaged as he manipulated the ten tribes of Israel in a standoff with David for several years. 
And while he was fleeing from Absalom, his own son, David absorbed the attacks verbally and physically from Shimei, who was from David's or Saul's household. And as he's making his way back from exile into Jerusalem, he had to settle a squabble between Mephibosheth and Ziba, both who were of Saul's household. And no sooner had he settled these things than Sheba from the tribe of Saul started a new rebellion against David with the ten tribes of Israel. And all of this in the context of his perennial struggle with the Philistines. Today, we see more fallout from Saul and the Philistines. That's why I believe this entire chapter goes together. And the first thing we see, and and remember, this reminds us there's always warfare on the kingdom of God. The church isn't the kingdom of God, but the church is the witness, the custodian, and the instrument of the kingdom of God. And so there's always warfare where God is at work with his people. The first thing we see here is the kingdom in turmoil, sin within the community of faith. Notice with me in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of Saul, or David, for three years. Year after year. Now, when we read about famine, it's hard for us to relate. We tend to think that the prices went up at Kroger. Or when we got to the grocery store, they didn't have our favorite brand. You know, we're soft. We really are. Prosperity has softened us. Famine meant death. That's what it meant. It meant death. It meant no food for you. It meant no food for your children. It meant no food for your grandchildren. No food. And, and, and David doesn't know what's behind that. And, and, and I, I find that interesting because there's so many TV preachers today that seem to speak ex cathedra about why a particular catastrophe occurs in a particular region in our country. Whether it's a earthquake or or a tsunami or whether it's a pandemic. And yet the book of Job teaches us that even though there are always reasons for suffering, and in this case Job's suffering, and in his case the reasons were revealed to us, the readers... Job never learned the reason for his suffering. He never learned. He asked God 16 times why. And God answered back with 70 questions to Job. And that's important for us. And here's why it's important. It is possible and it's pertinent to trust that the Lord has his reasons without knowing what those reasons are. In time, Job learned that. We see that in Job 42. But David, as the Messiah king, needed to know. And here's why. The Mosaic covenant had promised 
that Israel would prosper materially and physically in the land. And it also promised that if they were not faithful as God's kingdom of priests, there would be famine. And so David knows at this point there's been some kind of covenant. The broke has been broken in the camp. Well, notice in the second part of verse 1. And David sought the face of the Lord. That is his knee-jerk response to struggling. He would seek the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. Because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, when Israel entered the land, they were commanded to devote to utter destruction all the unrepented in the land. Genesis 15, 16 tells us that this would be due to the fact that the iniquity of the Canaanites would have reached its fullness by the time Israel comes into the land. And all you have to do is read Leviticus 18, among other texts, to see the kind of wickedness that was in that land. But they did not carry out that mandate with the Gibeonites. Here's what happened. The Gibeonites came and deceptively, this is Joshua 9, deceptively got Israel and the leaders of Israel, Joshua and the leaders, to enter a covenant with them, to, to save them, to protect them. Now, the Gibeonites weren't repentant. If they had been repentant, then Israel would not have put them to death. We see Rahab as a case in point of that. They were wanting salvation without repentance. There's a lot of people that way today. That's the Gibeonites. But they were, Israel was deceived into making this oath, this covenant with the Gibeonites that they would preserve their lives upon pain of death if they broke that covenant. And so that's the background here. And so for centuries... The Gibeonites had integrated into Israelite life. And that's not a good thing. God was seeking to protect Israel's purity and holiness. They had integrated into Israelite life. And at some point, Saul, and the text doesn't reveal this when or what was really behind it, Saul began to massacre them. He broke the covenant. And as years had passed... Saul's sin faded from the corporate memory of the people of God. Tends to do that, doesn't it? Sins are committed and we just kind of let it, we just kind of let it uh, blow off, blow over. That's what had happened. The memory had faded. But here's the thing. God's memory doesn't fade. It never fades. And the joining, the connecting of perfect memory with perfect justice and holiness is a very sobering thing. From our Holy Lord's perspective, nothing just blows over. So you'll have couples who will sin against each other. And 
the next day, it just blows over. But there was never really any repentance. All right? Well, nothing just blows over from a holy God's perspective. Gordon Ketty says, There is no statue of limitations with the justice of God. Sobering words. God's time to bring forth retribution, whether immediately or in a few years or in the final judgment, will inevitably come. Well, notice in verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, which is a, a nation in Canaan. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, God had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. I want you to note here, you can have zeal for the people of God and still be in sin. Saul did this out of zeal for Israel and Judah, and Saul is in sin. Covenant breaker. Verse 3, And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Well, the Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. We don't want reparations. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? And they said to the king, now keep in mind, this is not the Gibeonites' wrath. This is the wrath of God. They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul. The chosen of the Lord. It's a troubling passage. The king said, I will give them. Now, why couldn't someone just negotiate with the Gibeonites and come up with a, a more reasonable alternative? Well, it goes back to Numbers. Numbers 35, 33. Listen to these words. God says to the people of Israel as they, as they plan to make their way into the land, you shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. In other words, murder. Blood pollutes the land. When I think about that, it, it horrifies me when I think about the 60 million plus babies that have been murdered. It's horrifying. And then you hear people say, well, it's, that's, just one, that's just one issue. You can't be a one-issue voter. But if the issue is polluting the country with blood, something's wrong with that kind of reasoning. And he says, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. No atonement can be made except by the blood of the one who shed it. 
That's one reason they just couldn't negotiate with the Gibeonites and come up with a more, what we would perceive as a reasonable settlement. The second, Saul, the king, had broken that covenant oath. It was the king who did it. Joshua 9 says that when Israel and the Gibeonites made this covenant oath, that they sacrificed an animal. All right? Covenants were ratified by the shedding of blood. And they cut that animal in half. This is how they would do it. And then the people who were making the covenant would pass between the animal parts. Those animal parts were a symbol of the curse of breaking the covenant. You see it in Genesis 15. And so by passing through those animal parts... The, the ones who were engaging in the covenant were, a basic, were saying, if we break covenant, what happened to these animals symbolically will happen to us. The curse will fall on us. But here's a pertinent question, given our times. Does this contradict other places in Scripture? For instance, Deuteronomy 24, 16 Children shall not be put to death because of their fathers. The law said that a son or daughter does not receive the judgment due the sin of the father. Each one should be put to death for his own sin. So does this account contradict Deuteronomy 24? No. The Bible never contradicts itself because ultimately, though there are 40-plus human authors, there's one divine author. The Bible is breathed out by the Spirit. The Bible never contradicts itself. So what's going on? Well, that law in Deuteronomy 24 regulated individual cases. All right? Saul didn't violate this covenant as an individual. As the king, he represented the people. That's why in Israel, if the king is faithful, the people are deemed as faithful. If the king is unfaithful, the people are deemed as unfaithful. It's the one representing the many, all right? And so as the king, he represented the people. And consequently, when he broke the covenant, Israel broke the covenant. And that brings us to another question. It's a contemporary question that we need to be able to answer as, as Christians. Are modern day whites, white people, and we know all ethnicities are equally the image of God, all right? But are modern day whites guilty before God because of the racist sins of their ancestors? That's the question that's being bantered about right now. In other words, is slavery and Jim Crow on our hands? Are we guilty? And the Bible would say affirmatively, no. Slavery, chattel slavery, was wicked, utterly wicked. 
And we are astounded that there were Christians who embraced that institution. Jim Crow and the laws of Jim Crow were utterly wicked. And it grieves us that Christians could be blind to those kind of cultural sins. It also makes us ask what kind of cultural sins are we guilty of today? But having said that, we are not guilty for the sins of a previous generation. Whites aren't corporately guilty for their ancestors' racist sins. Ezekiel 18, listen to this. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. Let me repeat that. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father. So, if guilt can't be transmitted from a parent to a child. Now, sin patterns can be. That's a whole different ballgame. Sin patterns are transmitted. Our kids follow our lead. They follow our example and our model. That's a sobering. But that's another discussion for another day. Guilt can't be transmitted from the sins of the parents to the sins of the children. Hence, how much less can guilt be transmitted to us from unspecified strangers? That's an important question, isn't it? Importantly, a major difference between Old Testament Israel and modern-day whites is that Israel was a covenant people. Whites are not a covenant community. No, no more than Spanish speakers are a covenant community or, or redheads or blondes or brunettes. Here the offense was corporate as opposed to individual because the covenant with Gibeon was sworn by Israel's leaders on behalf of all the people. So if the covenant was broken, all Israel would be liable. That's the issue. But having said that, we have to acknowledge how horrific this situation is. It's, it's an ugly picture here. King Saul violated the covenant with Gibeon, but he's gone now. And he can't personally suffer the curses of the covenant. And so, those who are in Saul's family are stand-ins. They become, by imputation, the covenant breakers in the place of Saul and Israel. That's what it meant to be in Israel's theocracy. Now, that doesn't explain all our questions, because we're in a whole completely different covenant structure now. I don't think you can apply it this way at all anymore. But it's still horrific. And that may be the point. That may be the point for us. The text is driving home to us how horrific covenant breaking is. 
It's horrific. And let me add this, how costly atonement is. Atonement is costly. And, and, and we as Christians are always in danger of getting too used to the cost of atonement. We're always in the danger of that. And so what happens here at Gibeon, may it awaken us from our slumbers. Covenant breaking is horrific. Atonement is costly. Well, notice in verse 7. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Israel, or Saul. Now this takes us back to 2 Samuel 9, when God, or David brought Mephibosheth to the table, essentially adopted him for the sake of Jonathan, a covenant that he had made with Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20. And, and David's covenant commitment here to the unworthy, lame Mephibosheth points beyond itself to the infallible fidelity of the greater Davidic king who would come, who is committed, committed to lose none that the Father has given him. That is such a beautiful word, an encouraging word for us in these times. Notice in verse 8, the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni, and Mephibosheth. That's a different Mephibosheth. Don't be confused. It's a different one. Different parents. The earlier Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. And the five sons of Merab, the daughter Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Meholethite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them. She's protecting the corpses of her sons. Terrific. Terrific. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beast of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the, the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zelah, in the, tomb of, in the tomb of Kish, his father. Great care for the corpses of the deceased. Let me just say this. In the early centuries, one of the reasons the church was so effective in reaching the lost in the midst of persecution was because pagans began to notice the care that they took for the bodies of the deceased. And that's what you see here. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that God responded. Notice he was satisfied. 
And this is why I believe that what David did was correct, though it does not fit our sensibilities. God responded to the plea for the land. So why does the writer share this wrenching story? Troubles us all. Or it should. Here's the reason. He wants us to be sobered by it. Psalm 90, verse 11. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? The psalmist is asking a question. And here's the question he's asking. Do you reflect enough on the holy wrath of God? And the answer is no. We, we don't reflect enough. And that's why it bothers us so deeply. It does not fit our Western sensibilities. Let me just tell you this. With all the nonsense in our culture, the wrath of God's our hope. That's our hope. We'll see that next week in 2 Samuel 22. And the writer here is saying we should. We should reflect on the wrath of God. But no sooner is this sin in this camp addressed than David is now confronted once again with the Philistines. And that reminds us of the perpetual warfare on the kingdom of God and on the people of God. He addresses this issue and then another issue arises. One text, one email away. But we also see here the king's might. Second part of this passage, we see the kingdom at war. We've seen the compromise from within, but here we see the kingdom at war, external enemies. Verse 15, there was war between the Philistines and Israel. and David went down together with his servants and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. Now, David's response to this aggression is, not, is no surprise. But we would have expected to read what we read back in chapter 8, verse 1. That he defeated and he subdued them. But instead we read he was weary. He was weary. Now that doesn't mean defeat. But it implies limited capacity to persevere in the fight. In fact, we're going to see that he gets to the point where he can't actually fight. He's too weary. His people have to fight for him. And in David's weakness, in his weariness... Four representative foes will come against him. Foes that we could rightly say represent the onslaught of satanic evil. And I want you to think about this. Providentially, all four foes are physical giants. And that's important for us. You know what that means? That means the external foes attacking the kingdom appear invincible it's providential it appears they appear invincible and they're unrelenting one after another now we're going to go through this really quickly but i want you to see this we're going to see in this second part of this chapter servants of the king who out of love and devotion to the king contend with these seemingly invincible enemies of the kingdom of God 
but because they bear the very authority of the king and the kingdom of God, they emerge victoriously. That sound familiar? Because that's exactly what is true about us. Now notice in verse 16. In Ishbi Binab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. I love that. As the Messiah, he was the lamp of Israel. Now he will call Yahweh his lamp in chapter 22. But he expresses the lamp of Yahweh as the Messiah. And to quench the lamp would have been ruinous for the people of God. Their destiny depended on the victory of their Messiah. Well, notice in verse 18. After this, there was again war with the Philistines. It gobbed and Sibachai, the Hushethite, struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants, another giant. And there was war again. It's unrelenting, isn't it? We shouldn't be surprised by spiritual warfare. There was again war with the Philistines at Gob and Elhanan, the son of Jaar, Oregon, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Now, wait a second. Goliath the Gittite was the one that David killed. So, is the Bible contradicting itself? No. The original autographs of the Bible are perfect, inerrant, and infallible. But there were transmission errors, all right? Very few. In fact, so few that you can do a study this text with this text and you can come to terms with the transmission errors. In other words, copy errors. In 1 Chronicles 20, verse 5, the sister account to this account, it tells us that it was Goliath's brother who was killed. So the Bible's not an error. There was a transmission error as they were copying the autographs. Verse 20. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on, his each, on each hand, six toes on each foot, 24 in number, he also was descended from the giants. Giants coming out of the woodwork. They appear undefeatable. And it's relentless. There's nothing new under the sun. If that's where you feel things are right now, there's nothing new under the sun. And when he taunted Israel, be encouraged. Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath. And they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. 
Giants are mentioned for the first time in Numbers 13. When Joshua sent the spies into the land to, you know, to spy out the land, they came back and said, there are giants in the land. And only two of the witnesses said, we can take them. The others saw the giants as completely, you know, a people that they could not engage. In fact, Deuteronomy 9 describes these giants. It says they were so tall that the the question began to be raised, who can stand before them? But these giants represent the seed of the serpent. The giants, the enemies of God, represented the seed of the serpent that would ultimately be crushed by the seed of the woman. And that's why I love how this ends, verse 22. They fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. This is reminiscent of John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. So Christian, the, the pilgrimer, the pilgrim uh, was making his pilgrimage, and, and he's approaching the porter's lodge. And, and he saw two lions beside the path. And, and here's what he asked himself, how can I defeat them? How can I escape being torn to pieces? It's the way we feel sometimes. But as he drew nearer, the porter saw him and he asked him, Is your strength so small? Do not fear the lions. Yes, they are fearsome. They are roaring. But these lions can't harm you. Here's what he said to him. They are chained and put there for a trial of your faith. You've thought about what's going on in our culture right now. Might be put here for a trial of our faith. But they're chained. The enemies are chained. Keep in the middle of the path. No harm will come to you. But the porter said to to Christian. And, and these four giants, the demise of these four giants is just one more coming attraction of what is to come, how it's going to be in the end, how it's going to play out. Isaiah 54, referring to the people of God, no enemy, no weapon. Formed against you shall prosper. That's a promise to the people of God. But we don't have to wait until that day for victory. Yes, for a consummate victory, sure. Where there's no tears, there's no warfare. But we don't have to wait until that day for victory. Let me close with these words from A.W. Pink. For the Christian, the devil is a vanquished foe. He was defeated by Christ at the cross. So how did the cross take, uh, defeat the devil? Well, the ground of his dominion is our guilt. And Jesus took away the guilt by becoming guilty for us. Our guilt was imputed to him. All that we now have to do is resist the devil 
And the promise is he will flee from you. Why? Because the true lamp of the people of God can no longer be extinguished. This light will, John 1 says, overcome the darkness. It will. We're a promise-driven people. So instead of believing what you hear on the news, believe what the text says about your king. The light will overcome the darkness. And as servants of Christ, all we're doing right now as we wait for his return, we're engaging in a mop-up operation. That's what Paul meant in Romans 16, 20 when he said these words, May the God of peace... He's writing to the church. He's writing to the Roman church. He's also writing to the church at Fisherville in the 21st century. May the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that a good word? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Thank you for the word of God. We thank you for atonement. We've been reminded today of how heinous covenant breaking is. We also were reminded how glorious but costly atonement is. Typified in the Old Testament, but seen supremely in your Son, Jesus Christ, our King. We've also seen that there are enemies, they look like giants, but they've already been defeated. May we walk in the victory that we have in Jesus. We are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ, our King, our Messiah. And Lord, if there's any here today that's never trusted in Jesus, I pray that you would compel them, that your spirit would convict them of their need for a Savior, and that they would trust in Jesus for salvation. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.